Hello, and thank you for connecting with us here at Oasis Online. If this ministry is an encouragement to you, I would love to hear from you. Would you send me an email at pastor at obclv.org? I hope you enjoy the service today and that God would speak directly to your heart. Let me just share something before I begin. About two years ago, I was at a pastor's conference in Ames, Iowa. At that pastor's conference, I heard a statistic that really burdened my heart. There's a man by the name of George Barna who does polls among evangelical Christians. He did a poll right after the 2012 election, and the conclusion was that in the 2012 election, there were 12 million evangelical Christians that were not registered to vote, and there were an additional 26 million evangelical Christians that didn't vote. That is a total of 38 million evangelical Christians that did not vote. Out of an estimated total of 89 million, that is over 40% of Christians that did not vote. We get what we deserve. And so I came home very burdened. I was in my quiet time with the Lord. And the Lord took me to a scripture in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 3, verse 17, that says, Son of man, I called you as a watchman on the wall to do two things. Number one, to hear from me, that is to hear from God. And number two, to warn the people. And I received the mandate from the Lord. And the mandate was, go tell my pastors to go warn my people. In the last two years, I have done in excess of 80 pastors' conferences all over America, from Alaska to California to Florida to to Washington, D.C., all over the country. And in addition, I have given this message in about 50 churches. And I want to share with you why pastors and Christians in general need to be involved in the civic society. And I want to do that both from a biblical standpoint and also from a historical standpoint. The Bible says, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is already laid, which is Jesus Christ. When we are on the foundation of Jesus Christ, and we need to read this slide from the bottom up, and that foundation begins when we surrender our life to Christ, when we become a child of God, and we begin a relationship with the living God. And then we begin to walk in accordance with God's precepts. We call that in America a Judeo-Christian ethic, and I'll talk a little bit more about that in a few minutes. And then God begins to manifest the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, and the rest of it, which is really the character of Christ being manifested through us. And God gives us a purpose in life, a direction in life. And I would say if there is anything that characterizes the life of a Christian more than anything else is that we live a life of contribution. There is not a higher calling in the Christian life than for us to invest our lives into the lives of others. That's what the Christian life is all about. The net result of that lifestyle is the free society with respect for the individual. The Bible also says, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Unfortunately, the world has set up other foundations. 
I want to talk to you for a minute about the most prevalent of those foundations, and that is secular humanism. Secular humanism says there is no God, you are your own God. And of course, under that setup, there are no moral absolutes. As a matter of fact, their mantra is if it feels good, do it. So that type of society is characterized by a lot of immorality, a lot of chaos. But here is the challenge. Here is the sad part. Secular humanism has crept into a lot of churches across America. And there are many churches, many churches in America preaching what I call the social gospel. Trying to look more like the world with the excuse of attracting the world. The problem is when the world comes, there's nothing different. Because they talk and act just like the world. And those churches lose their impact upon society. Now there's another terminology that we have been hearing a lot over the last five or six years. And it's this term, social justice. I mean, it sounds so good. Who would want social injustice? But what does that mean? Where does that term, social justice, come from? Well, it comes right out of Karl Marx. Social justice is collectivism. It is the rights of the group. It denies individual responsibility, which is the biblical concept. And instead, it divides everybody into a series of smaller groups, makes every person in each group feel like they're incapable of achieving anything. They need a handout. So let's just think about this. These people don't believe in God, so they cannot rely on God. Individual responsibility is destroyed, so there is no self-reliance. So if they cannot rely on God and there is no self-reliance, the only thing left is rely upon almighty government. So this social justice creates a dependent society. And the worst thing about this dependent society is that it kills the dream. No longer do they feel that they can achieve the American dream. You know, that's the greatest thing about this country, is that with hard work and perseverance, you can achieve whatever dreams you have. The Bible puts it this way, though the righteous falls seven times, he gets up again. But social justice kills the dream. And so people feel trapped in a circular treadmill, just in their lot in life, And this dependent society tends to grow more and more. And the more it grows, the more it's totally controlled by a totalitarian government. That is the definition of socialism. Now, unfortunately, the church has been very silent in spite of all that has been happening in America. And there are a series of excuses that the church gives for its silence. The first one is, Separation of church and state. I'll tell you, I know the Constitution very well. I know the Declaration even better. Separation of church and state is not in the Constitution. It's not in the Declaration. Where does it come from? Well, to really understand it, we got to go back about 400 years. If you were living in England in the early 1600s, 
and you were not a member of the Church of England, you were a heretic and you were persecuted. That's what drove the pilgrims to America in the early 1600s. Seeking the freedom to worship Almighty God. Do you realize what a wonderful heritage we have in this country? We are the only country on the face of the earth that was founded on the Word of God. No other. What a wonderful heritage. Well, let's move forward a couple hundred years. At the time that the framers gave us this constitutional representative republic, all 13 colonies were concerned as to whether this new government was going to impose on them a state religion like their forefathers had fled from. All 13 colonies were concerned. The Danbury Baptists expressed that concern to then-president Thomas Jefferson. And Jefferson, in an effort to appease their peers, he writes a letter to the Danbury Baptists. I want to point out three things on this letter. First, he says, believing with you that in matters of faith and religion, those are only between you and God, and no one has a right to interfere. Very clear. And then he says that their legislature should make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. In other words, he quotes verbatim the First Amendment of the Constitution. And then he says, thus building a wall of separation between church and state. If we take those three statements in context, it is absolutely obvious that Jefferson is only talking about a one-way wall. A one-way wall to prevent government from imposing a state religion upon the people. A one-way wall to prevent government from interfering with our free exercise of religion. In no way, shape, or form can you infer that Jefferson is saying that the church should not have an influence upon every area of society. The church should have an influence upon arts and entertainment, upon sports, upon the media, upon education, upon business, upon government. Now, let me give you a little bit of history of the last 50 years or so. 1962, prayer was banned from schools. And a year later, the Supreme Court banned the Bible from schools. Now, that one is very interesting because did you know that the very first Bible printed in America was printed under the auspices of Congress? And it was printed so it will be the principal textbook in primary schools, high schools, and universities. Doesn't sound like separation church and state, does it? But here is the sad thing. In spite of these two horrible decisions, the church remains silent. Their excuse is a political issue. How can you call prayer a political issue? How can you call Bible study a political issue? But that is exactly what the church did. The consequence, you can see the statistics. Teen pregnancy skyrocketed after 1963, and so did violent crime. Ten years later, nine unelected justices of the Supreme Court decided that a baby in the womb did not have that unalienable right to life coming from our Creator, as stated in the Declaration of Independence. And they legalized abortion. Again, the church remained silent. Same excuse. It's a political issue. 
the consequence, 57 million babies have been murdered in America through abortion. God help us. We as the church of Jesus Christ need to fall on our faces in corporate repentance for the sin of abortion. The blood of 57 million babies cries out to God just like the blood of Abel did. And then just a few years ago, the people of the state of California, in a referendum, they passed something called Proposition 8 that stated that marriage was only between a man and a woman by the will of the people. One federal judge in California called it unconstitutional. And unfortunately, the Supreme Court refused to hear the case and basically said you must abide by the will of that one judge. And the opinion of one federal judge thwarted the will of the people. And then just a month ago, we saw the Supreme Court state that homosexual marriage was legal in all America and it was a right. Now let me be very clear. Don't be fooled. That decision at the Supreme Court is not primarily about homosexual marriage. That decision is about coming against our religious liberty. And I'll tell you why. In order to legalize homosexual marriage, they had to call it a civil right. That means they're calling homosexuality a civil right. That means, Pastor, that the next thing that may happen is a homosexual may come to your church demanding to be hired, whether as pastor or as janitor, is immaterial, or they may come to your Christian school or to your private business. And if you say, well... It, that violates my religious beliefs, I can't hire you, you're going to be slapped with a civil rights discrimination lawsuit. Those are going to be happening all over America. These are perilous times. And my brother, you are right. It is time that we stand and raise up that banner. The book of Isaiah says, when the enemy comes in like a flood, the, void, the, vo the Lord raises up a standard. Jehovah Nisi, that standard is a flag of battle. It's a flag of battle. Let me just share with you a quick story. Last year in Houston, Texas, I live in Dallas. This is about 250 miles from where I live. Houston, Texas has a homosexual mayor, a lesbian who is the mayor of the city. Well, that homosexual mayor with the city council passed what was called a bathroom ordinance. That ordinance stated that depending upon how you felt on any particular day, you could walk into any bathroom. So if today a man felt like a woman, he could go walk into the women's bathroom. Let's suppose your daughter was in that bathroom and she objected. That man would have the right to sue your daughter from infringing on his civil rights. This is crazy. Well, five pastors in Houston, Texas, decided to challenge this ordinance. They needed 22,000 signatures to get it on a referendum. They mobilized the churches, collected in excess of 50,000 signatures. But the mayor wouldn't have any of it. First, she came up with a rule. If there's one name on a sheet that is invalid, we got to throw out the whole sheet. 
Well, that didn't do it, so she came up with another rule. Well, if somebody that is collecting signatures is not registered to vote, all those signatures are invalid. Even that didn't do it. But what she was successful in doing with those objections is get it past the November election. So then the, the, the five uh, pre, uh, pastors, they file to have a special election for a referendum. In retaliation, the mayor subpoenaed all the sermons of those pastors and any emails that referred to her or to homosexuality. And all five of those pastors said, we will not comply. The next day, my son picked up the phone and called his pastor, the pastor of First Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. And he said, Pastor Greg, I guess you heard what happened yesterday. And Pastor Greg said, yes, Ted, I'm very concerned about it. So my son said, Pastor, I would like to have a pastor's rally tomorrow at 11 o'clock, and I'm calling you to ask your permission to have it at the sanctuary. And this pastor begins to laugh. And my son says, why are you laughing? And he says, you know, Ted, about a month ago, I have been so concerned about what's happening in our nation, what's happening in our city. I called a series of pastors. I have 50 pastors coming to my office tomorrow at 10 o'clock to pray for our city. Only God can do that. So my son joined them at 10 o'clock. They all spent an hour on their knees. Then they came, came down to the sanctuary at 11 o'clock. By this time, there were about 500 people in the sanctuary. And all 50 pastors stood with my son on the platform and all in unison said, Caesar has no jurisdiction over the pulpit. By that weekend, there was a rally with several thousand people. And somebody had the idea, why don't we start sending Bibles to the mayor? Thousands of Bibles from all over the country began descending upon the mayor's office. And phone calls and emails, the pressure was so great that the mayor rescinded her subpoena. Now, we still don't have a referendum. But these ordinances are proliferating around the country. They're called SOGI ordinances, S-O-G-I, Sexual Orientation and Gender Identity Ordinances. We need to be very vigilant about these ordinances because they're creeping up in public schools and in everywhere. So we need to have our eyes open to this thing. It's happening. All right. The question is, how long are we going to remain silent? But the more important question is, are we going to have to answer to God for our silence? You know, Pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer in Nazi Germany once said, silence in the face of evil is evil itself. He also said, not to speak is to speak. Now, there's another excuse that you hear from a lot of well-meaning pastors. God just called me to preach the gospel. My question to those pastors is, tell me what is the gospel? Because the gospel is a lot more than John 3.16. As a matter of fact, instead of my answering that question, let me let the Apostle Paul answer that question. In Acts chapter 20, the Apostle Paul said, my hands are free from the blood of all men, 
because I have not shown to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. The whole counsel of God goes from Genesis 1-1 to the end of Revelation. But let me tell you what we do in many churches. We read the Bible with a pair of scissors. Well, these verses of Scripture don't go in accordance with my denominational doctrine. Let's cut them out. And different denominations cut out different verses. Almost all the churches have cut out Romans chapter 1 because that's not politically correct. As a matter of fact, did you know that in England or in Canada, if you preach on Romans chapter 1, you'll be put in prison because they're calling it hate speech? Did you know that one of the presidential candidates is calling for removing homosexuality from the list of sins? Rewriting the Word of God? Jesus said, you're the light of the world. But you know what we do? We come to our churches with our little flashlights, pointing the light on one another. Boy, are we great about criticizing one another, about gossiping about one another. But you know something about light? Light is worthless unless you point it to darkness. That's out there in the marketplace. We got to stop just playing church inside of the four walls and take the church out there. There's a whole world dying in darkness out there. Jesus also said, you're the salt of the earth. You know, salt is a preserver. But for salt to preserve anything, you have to put it upon that which you want to preserve. It is about time that we fight to preserve the sanctity of life. It is about time that we fight to preserve the sanctity of marriage. It is about time that we fight to preserve the sexual purity of our teenagers. Now there's a message. Look at Proverbs 17, 15. He who justifies the wicked or he that condemns the just, both of them are an abomination to the Lord. Let me ask you a question. If you're silent, are you not justifying the wicked? Silence is not an option. Now, here is the most common excuse of all. Politics is a dirty business. I don't want any part of it. I'm sure everybody in here has heard it. Is that right? Have you heard it? I'm not going to ask you if you said it. Politics is a dirty business. I don't want any part of it. And you wash your hands just like Pontius Pilate. Let me share with you one more scripture. Proverbs 29.2. When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. When the wicked rule, people mourn. If the righteous, the people who believe the principles of the word of God, are not voting, are not even running for office, what is left? The wicked electing the wicked. And it becomes our fault. Becomes our fault. Now, let me ask you something else. This may shock you. Did you know that the Bible tells you exactly who to vote for? Let me put it in context. Moses has just crossed the Red Sea. And now Moses is in the wilderness. Moses is, is trying to govern over a million people. And Moses is going bananas. And here comes his father-in-law, Jethro. And he says, Moses, what you're doing is not good. And then in Exodus chapter 18, verse 21, God speaks to Moses through Jethro. 
And he says, you select from among the people. Note that God doesn't say, I will appoint. No, 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 no. You select, which is the same as you elect. And then he gives four qualifications. Able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness. Able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness. That is how you vet every candidate. Now let's take them one at a time. Able men and women, of course. Well, that simply means elect men and women who are capable of doing the job. Let's stop electing the village idiot. Number two, such as fear God. Well, if you fear God, you obey the precepts of the Word of God. We call that in America a Judeo-Christian ethic. What is a Judeo-Christian ethic? Well, first of all, it's a moral code of conduct. And then it's honesty, integrity, hard work, individual responsibility, the rule of law, and yes, free enterprise, unlimited government. And all of that, the Bible speaks volumes about. Able men, such as fear God. Number three, men of truth. Let me ask you a question. Aren't you sick and tired of men and women of lies in government? I mean, they tell you one lie to cover up another lie. Whether it is Fast and Furious, or Benghazi, or the IRS, or the NSA, or Ebola, or the missing emails, or money from foreign governments, is lie upon lie upon lie. Let me ask you another question. Have you ever have had a candidate for public office give you these wonderful promises about what they're going to do only to get elected and do exactly the opposite? Anybody had that experience? It's okay if you answer me. But you know something? That one is easy to fix if you just follow this simple rule. Stop listening to their rhetoric and start looking at their record. Stop listening to what they say. Start looking at what they do. Jesus put it this way. Ye shall know them by their fruit. It's about time we do some fruit checking. I mean, if a politician tells you I'm pro-life, but they voted 17 times in favor of abortion, don't believe them. We got politicians telling you today, I'm against Common Core, but they've been promoting Common Core for the last 10 years. Or I'm against amnesty, but they've been promoting amnesty for the last 10 years. Don't believe them. You shall know them by their fruits. Able men, such as fear God, men of truth. Number four, hating covetousness. Something very interesting about covetousness in government is not primarily about money. It is about power and control. Politicians covet power and they covet the control that power gives them over we the people. That's why we have politicians in Washington that have been there for 30 years. And they want to be there another 20. They don't want to relinquish that power. Lord Acton once said, power corrupts. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. So now you know how to vet every candidate. Four qualifications. Able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness. The scripture continues. 
and establish them as rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, rulers of ten. So what you see is Moses, rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, rulers of ten. That's equivalent to federal government, state government, county government, local government. Verse 22. And only take up to Moses, that is to the federal government, matters of great importance. Everything else you handle yourself at the local level. That is the essence of federalism. That is the essence of limited government. That is Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution. That's the Ninth Amendment and the Tenth Amendment. Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution is called the Enumerated Powers of Congress. Eighteen powers in Article 1, Section 8. If it's not there, the federal government's got no business involved in it. Now, let me tell you one that is very much applicable to today. The word marriage is not in Article 1, Section 8. That means the federal Supreme Court had no jurisdiction to rule over marriage. That decision is unconstitutional. And there are a lot of others that they are doing that are totally unconstitutional. And according to the Ninth and Tenth Amendment, all those powers are reserved for the states. So don't tell me the Constitution is not based on the Word of God. There are three very important parts of the Constitution out of two verses of Scripture. As a matter of fact, the reason we are a representative constitutional republic instead of a democracy is because of those two verses. A democracy doesn't work because a democracy is mob rule. In a democracy, the minority has no rights whatsoever. That's why democracies fail. As a matter of fact, separation of powers, where does it come from? It comes from the book of Isaiah where God says, I'm your king, I'm your judge, I'm your lawgiver. There are the three powers. Tax exemption to the churches doesn't come from the IRS. It comes from Ezra chapter 7, verse 24, which says that the priests and the Levites and even the singers were exempt from all taxes and, and excises. Look it up. Now, you know something? You look at the Declaration of Independence. I count 17 grievances in the Declaration of Independence. But did you know that each and every one of those grievances were preached from the pulpits of America before they were written on the Declaration? It was preachers from the pulpit calling out King George for the atrocities that the British were perpetrating upon the American people. The question is, where are those pastors today? Many of them are hiding behind their pulpits, scared to death of losing their tax exemption, scared to death of offending people, having people leave the church and consequently income leave the church, scared to death of not being politically correct. Well, it's about time they become Biblically correct instead of politically correct. But you know, you know where Paul Revere was going when he was going on his famous ride? He was going to the home of a pastor. A pastor by the name of Jonas Clark. Can anyone tell me what was the name of the first battle for our independence? It was the Battle of Lexington, right? Is that right? 
But did you know that the Battle of Lexington was fought right outside the church of Pastor Jonas Clark? And the majority of that militia was Pastor Jonas Clark and the main from his congregation? Second battle for our independence was the Battle of Concord, fought right outside the church and Concord. Again, the majority of that militia was the pastor of the church and the men from his congregation. Let me tell you about one more pastor. His name was Peter Muhlenberg. Pastor Peter Muhlenberg was a pastor in Woodstock, Virginia. In early 1776, he's preaching at his church. Pastor Muhlenberg was one of many pastors that the British greatly feared. They called them the Black Robe Regiment because they all wore long black robes. Pastor Peter Muhlenberg is preaching on Ecclesiastes chapter 3. He concludes his message with verse 8 that says there's a time for war and a time for peace. And Pastor Peter Muhlenberg says this is a time for war. And as he unbuttons his black robe, it uncovers his colonel's uniform in the Continental Army. He turns to his congregation and he says, how many of you men will follow me to go fight for our independence? 300 men left that church that day to go fight for the freedoms we enjoy today. I submit to you, had it not been for pastors, we may still be a colony of Great Britain. So don't talk to me about separation of church and state. It was the church that gave us the American Revolution. The Framers came right out of the first great awakening. It was totally intertwined. It was a dual awakening, a, re, a spiritual and a political revival, both in one. As a matter of fact, let me give you another story that you probably don't know. 29 of the 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence were seminary graduates. They were theologians. Don't believe this lie that they tried to tell you that the framers were a bunch of secularists. They were deeply committed men of God. As a matter of fact, I am convinced without a shadow of a doubt that this document, the Constitution of the United States of America, is the greatest document that has ever been written outside of the Bible. And the reason is that, that those framers were on their knees seeking revelation from above. And revelation is what they got. I'll tell you what, we need to go back to the foundations of this country. Because if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Let me talk to you about a man that was the leader of the Second Great Awakening. His name was Reverend Charles Finney. Charles Finney said, brethren, our preaching will bear its legitimate fruits. If immorality prevails in the land, the fault is ours to a great degree. He was talking to a group of preachers. He said, if there is a decay of conscience, the pulpit is responsible for it. Now, lest those of you who are not preachers say, oh, he's not talking to me. Let me say something. We all have a pulpit. It may be the place where you work. It may be the place where you go to school. It may be your extended family. It may be your neighborhood. We all have a pulpit. Now, of course, the pastor bear greatest responsibility because to whom much is given, much is required, but we all have a pulpit. Finney continues, if the public press lacks moral discrimination, 
Oh my, oh my, oh my. The public press today has no concern for the truth. They've become a propaganda machine. Just spewing out the lies of whatever the administration is doing. You know, all the communist countries around the world have what they call the Ministry of Propaganda. The dissenter called it the Ministry of Misinformation. Well, we got one of those in America. It's called ABC, CBS, NBC, MSNBC, and CNN. Spewing out the lies that all of us keep drinking the Kool-Aid. Well, he continues, if the church is degenerate and worldly, he says the pulpit is responsible for it. If the world loses its interest in religion, he says the pulpit is responsible for it. Listening to the next two. If Satan rules the halls of legislation, notice that he doesn't blame the politicians. He says the pulpit is responsible for it. The next one. If our politics has become so corrupt that the very foundations of our government are ready to fall away, Again, he doesn't blame the politicians. He said the pulpit is responsible for it. And let me tell you why he says that. If you look at his last statement. Let us not ignore this fact, my dear brethren, but let us lay, lay it to heart and be fairly awake as to our responsibility in respect to the morals of this nation. The biggest lie that we have swallowed is this. Politics cannot legislate morality. A lot of preachers have heard say that. That is a lie. Politics legislates morality all the time. What do you think it was when they took prayer from school? When they took Bible reading from school? When they legalized abortion? When now they legalize homosexual marriage? Is that not legislating morality? Let's go back to Proverbs 29 and 2. When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. When the wicked rule, people mourn. Again, as I said before, if the righteous are not voting, if the righteous are not running for office, the wicked are going to elect the wicked, and they are going to legislate their wicked brand of morality. That's what's happening today, and it is our fault. Let me tell you about another pastor. His name was Martin Niemüller in Nazi Germany. Pastor Niemüller said, first they came for the socialists. And I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists. And I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews. And I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Finally, they came for me. There was no one left to speak on my behalf. Pastor Martin E. Mueller was arrested one evening. Pastor E. Mueller was a Lutheran pastor. Like the majority of the church in Germany was Lutheran. So he was dressed all in black with a pastoral collar. He's thrown into a cell with a bunch of drunks. The next morning, a Lutheran chaplain dressed just like E. Mueller walks into that jail cell, and he sees Niemüller on the floor, and he says, Brother, why are you in there? Niemüller looks at him and says, My dear brother, considering what's happening in our nation today, why are you not in here with me? You see, the time to be silent is over. It is about time that we draw a line in the sand because we have a responsibility before God. Now, 
let me tell you, yes, we must start with Second Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, says God, will forgive their sin and will heal their land. We must start with prayer. We must start with Second Chronicles 7.14. But 2 Chronicles 7.14 is only half the equation. Let's look at the example of Jesus. Jesus would go up the mountain and spend all night praying. But in the morning, he came down to minister to the people. There's a second part to that equation. And the second part to that equation is 2 Corinthians 5.20, which says that we are ambassadors for Christ. That means we are God's representatives here on earth. We are God's hands, we are God's feet, we are God's mouthpiece. And Jesus said, shout it from the housetops. Not hide it under a bushel, shout it from the housetops. We have a responsibility, my brethren, to elect righteous leaders. We need to stop being politically correct and become biblically correct. You know, I don't know about you. But the greatest goal of my life is to one day hear my Savior say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Nothing compares to that. I want to leave you with five action steps. Number one is we need to make sure we understand that voting is our civic responsibility. If you don't vote, you got no right to complain. As a matter of fact, I believe every church in America should have a voter registration table in their lobby all the time. Now, there are some that say, oh, that's political. It's not political. It's not even partisan. But you can't vote if you're not registered to vote. Number two, we ought to be preaching from the pulpits the issues that are affecting America today. Most pastors are not doing it because they think they're not politically correct. But you know, the congregation, if there's one person they trust, is the pastor. If the pastor does not address this issue, the Bible talks about those pastors that don't share with their congregation. It said the sheep are scattered like sheep without a shepherd. Read Jeremiah chapter 6 about those pastors that tickle men's ears. And in Jeremiah chapter 6, God calls them false prophets preaching peace, peace, where there's no peace. Number three, we need to encourage pastors and people of faith to be involved in the political arena, to be running for public office at every level. I have friends that are pastors and are state representatives. They're still pastors and being state representatives. You know something? They have an advantage of all other state representatives, because they have a whole congregation praying for them all the time. I know several like that. I know state senators that are pastors, encouraged by their congregation. Number four, we need to become informed as to where every candidate stands. Don't believe their rhetoric. Look at their record. Fortunately, there are dozens of Christian organizations that provide voters' guides Nonpartisan, they list all the candidates and show you in a graphical manner how they voted in all the critical issues. And number five, make sure you vote for men and women that uphold the Word of God, that vote in accordance to the principle of, word, of the Word of God. If we do that, 
we are going to see America restore to that vision that the framers had. You got to realize that God has set America apart. America has been a blessing to the world. The evangelism of the world came out of America. And still today, America sends more evangelists than all the other countries together and finances the evangelism of the world. We've also spread liberties throughout the world. We've been blessing Israel forever, except right now. And God has blessed us because we blessed Israel. I believe that God's greatest days for America are still ahead. But it's all up to us to stand in the gap and stand for righteousness. I want to leave you with the last few words of the Declaration of Independence. Where those framers, those men of God basically said, relying upon the protection of divine providence. We mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Our lives are under attack from the cradle to the grave. I already showed you how 57 million babies have been murdered through abortion. At the other end, it's no better. You know, with this healthcare system we have today, which is nothing more than socialized medicine, you look around the world, anywhere you have socialized medicine, there's a waiting period for the elderly anywhere from 12 to 18 months. What makes you think it's not going to happen in America? It's already happening in America. Veterans, men and women that have laid their lives on the line for our freedom have died because of denied care by the VA hospitals. That is a travesty. Our fortunes? Give me a break. This administration has both hands in your pocket trying to take every hard-earned dollar you get in order to give it out in handouts to buy votes. But I'll tell you something. They may take our lives. They may take our fortune. But no one can take our honor. No one can take your honor. You got to surrender it yourself. You know, when we look at this horrible thing that is happening with ISIS, where we see thousands upon thousands of Christians being beheaded, and these Christians, men, women, and children, are being told, renounce Christ or we will cut your head off. It is horrible. But you know what we have not heard even once? Is any of those even children saying, no, 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 no. Don't cut my head. I will renounce Christ. They basically have said, go right ahead, but I will not renounce my Lord. You look at Miriam Ibrahim. She was in in a cell in Sudan, her only crime being a Christian, condemned to death in shackles, pregnant with a two-year-old baby. She gave birth in shackles in a prison cell in Sudan. She was told, renounce Christ and we will release you. She said, I will not, I cannot renounce my Lord. I'll tell you, our faith has not been tested to that level. I hope and pray, if and when it does, that we will have that integrity to stand firm and say, I will not renounce my Lord. Thank you for worshiping with us here at Oasis Online. If this message was an encouragement to you, would you send me an email and let me know at pastor at obclv.org. Before you go, go check us out at oasisbaptistchurch.org. And if we can be of any help to you or an encouragement to you, Please let us know. 
Thank you so much for listening and have a great day.